Hey, this is Pastor Dusty. Thanks for listening to the Messages and Messengers podcast. I hope it's meaningful to you and your walk with Jesus. Enjoy. I've had some church up in here. It's good to be in the presence of the Lord with you this morning. Well, good morning, Plymouth Nazarene, in-house and online. I'm Pastor Dusty, and you are loved. Well, I hate to tell you, but we're starting with a test this morning. There's a visual test. And uh, in just a second, I'm going to show a picture on the screen, and you need to identify and memorize three objects within five seconds. Ready, set, go. Okay, you got your three? You got more than three? If you have more than three, we need to have a conversation about honesty. So this is a computer-generated image of familiar nothing. It looks like a lot of things in a dirty room, but none of it's real. None of it is really anything. It looks like things you would see in a closet or in a basement, but there's no real substance to it. If you've been around the church for a long time, this can happen to your brain when you hear a familiar scripture. When you hear somebody say, open your Bible to John 3.16, you hear, and you just stop paying attention. It's so familiar, we can actually miss the substance. So as we continue our Shaped by a Song series today, uh, we get to Psalm 23, which is surely the most familiar one. Even somebody who's never attended church before probably could guess about 30% of this just from movies and TV shows with funeral scenes. So... Uh, There is a fun exercise that we're going to do with this familiar section of scripture, and what we're going to do is we're going to take just the first phrase, and we're going to emphasize one word each time to intentionally focus on a certain angle of its beauty and truth. So the familiar phrase is, you know it, the Lord is my shepherd, right? But we're going to look at each individual word with focus. So the first one, the Lord is my shepherd. The, there's only one. If you grew up Jewish, and most of us did not, you recited the Shema every day in prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.4 is where that's coming from. Not a Lord, the Lord, the one and only. The next one, the Lord is my shepherd. That focuses on his authority. Are you the type of person that finds security in authority, or do you resist it? Do you find comfort in clear boundaries, or are you the type of person that intentionally crosses those lines just to see what happens? How do you feel about red lights, stop signs, and speed limits? Do you see those as general recommendations or guidelines for the safety of others? No one tells me how fast to drive and where. Well, if that's your style, you may enjoy a trip to India or the Philippines. That's how they drive there. But... Lord is a crucial word in the Christian life. Being a disciple of Jesus is less about which doctrines we sign off on and a lot more about who we're living our life in allegiance to. Rome did not have a problem with Jesus' followers believing in anything, but they had a real problem with them living with Jesus as their king. On Judgment Day, there's no theology test to see if you can answer all the trivia questions correctly. But there is an inventory to see if you lived your life like Jesus modeled, 
taught and empowered us to do? Did I love others like Jesus did? Did I serve the poor, the hungry, and the broken? Did I pray for my enemies? Did I share the good news of the kingdom of God with those that were spiritually thirsty? So the real question here is, is my allegiance to me or is my allegiance to Jesus? Am I setting the priorities on my time, talent, treasure, and influence? Or am I allowing God's word to set those priorities in my life? Who's running the show? Who's calling the shots? The next focus, the Lord is my shepherd. God is. Not just was, not just someday will be, but currently is. He didn't just used to do miracles. It's not just someday the kingdom of God will be real. He now is. What do we sing at Christmas? Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Is that just bad grammar or is it a deep theological truth? Maybe both. The Lord is my shepherd. That's personal. Israel, as a community, used the phrase over and over and over in the Old Testament, the Lord our God, as a community, act of worship. Thomas, after all his doubts and struggles to follow Jesus, when he puts his hand in the crucifixion wounds, what does he say? My Lord and my God. Do you have a moment like that in your life where the faith that you were raised in became your own? Maybe you had wonderful parents or grandparents that read you the scripture at home. They prayed with you. They sang the faith through worship songs. They brought you to church for many years. And then one day, the Lord our God became my Lord and my God personally in your life. If so, give thanks for those parents or grandparents. And if you're still searching for that personal connection to God, lean into it. Jesus is calling you to follow him. Not just as a theological idea, but in practical, tangible, everyday ways. The way that you talk to people, the way you treat people, the way you spend your money, the way you live your life. Let me invite you to say yes to Jesus' call to follow him today. The last one, the Lord is my shepherd. David, who wrote this, knew what it meant to lead and protect sheep. A good leader is a good follower, not a maverick. Are the best army generals the ones that disobey orders to get things done their own way? Uh, yes, Mr. President, I know you said to invade North Korea, but I invaded South Korea because it was a little closer and it seemed a little more strategic, plus we already had tanks there. No, that doesn't make a good army general. There is security in being under a spiritual leader. Uh, I remember being an idealistic, passionate, young pastor in my 20s, thinking that I knew better than my spiritual leaders. I had big plans and ideas of things that I wanted to implement, but I wasn't able to. I was given direct assignments on what to teach, where, in what class, what to preach on, and how to do specific outreaches. But because I respected my pastor as my spiritual leader, I did what I was asked. And guess what happened? I learned and grew in ways that I never would have if I was just given complete freedom to do whatever I wanted my own way. School's the same way. I was forced, like you, to read dozens, if not hundreds, of textbooks that I didn't want to and to pay insane prices for those textbooks that I gave away to Goodwill for free. 
But I learned from those spiritual leaders things that I wouldn't have learned if I just picked up books from authors that I already liked. So here's all of verse one. Why don't you say it with me? You know it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, the word want does not mean, did not mean the same thing in 1611 when that was translated as it does today. Uh, it doesn't mean desire as in the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not desire anything. That's Buddhism. Uh, it means the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack anything that I need. In fact, there are plenty of things that you want, but God will make sure that you have what you need. Peter put it this way. Check it out in uh, 2 Peter 1. He says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. Oh, this is so good. He has given us everything we need. Why? So that we can get lazy and complain about the things we don't have? No. Look at that verse again. So that we can participate in the divine natures as followers of Jesus. We allow the Holy Spirit to work in and through us to establish the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. That's the gospel. That's what we're here for. That's our purpose as believers. Let's go on to verse 2. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. Uh, close your eyes for a minute, and when you picture green pastures, what image comes to mind? Well, you may be surprised at what David was talking about. Part of a shepherd lesson, I did want to look at one thing in the wilderness that will maybe surprise you a bit. Believe it or not, this is called wilderness, midbar, but it's also called green pastures. Now, when you take a Westerner here the first time and you look at this, you find people say, well, I don't know that I can go there because the Psalm 23, the Lord leads me into green pastures, has been pictured as belly deep alfalfa. Well, you haven't seen any belly deep alfalfa. And from biblical time to today, it's rare to see a flock in the farm country. There isn't a lot of farm country in this culture. And so farmers kept the shepherds out as much as they could. Maybe they would come in a little bit after the harvest to glean what was left, but you don't want sheep where you can farm. This is the land of the shepherd. Right on the hillside across from us, you can see those grazing trails cut there by sheep maybe as long ago as Abraham's time. They're spaced so that an animal on one path and an animal on another can reach right to the middle between them. 
that determines the distance so you can graze an entire hillside and the shepherds lead their sheep across that hillside slowly grazing what's there now you look at it from here and you say what's there in fact i remember my first impression i woke up one morning i was sleeping out in the wilderness and i remember waking up watching a flock of sheep on a hillside like this and my re my feeling was what are those rock eating sheep i mean what do they eat how can you call this green pastures well the answer is there's a small amount of moisture present here they get a little bit of rain every year not much but a little. Second, there is humidity in the air, especially in the evening breeze, like right now, you can feel it coming from the west off the Mediterranean, there's moisture in the air. That moisture, combination of the rain and the humidity, condenses or drips along the edge of these rocks here. And if you notice, right around the rocks, almost always next to the rocks, you get little tufts of green. Get one a moment. That's what we refer to as the green pastures. So the shepherd looks for a hillside. That's exactly what she was doing. Look at that flock across from us there, just stunning. Those two shepherd girls have found a hillside that either was exposed to the wind or had that small amount of rain. And they move that flock across the hillside and it's one mouthful here, walk a step or two, another mouthful, another mouthful, another mouthful. Now that changes the green pasture image a little bit, besides the picture changing radically. Green pastures are not everything you need for the rest of your life. If you make that belly deep alfalfa, then what God is saying, if you follow me, I'm gonna plunk you down and you'll never have to move an inch the rest of your life. Just reach out and grab it. Tell me that your life with God has been like that. Worry, said one rabbi, is dealing with tomorrow's problems on today's pasture. In the desert, you learn, the shepherd will get you what you need for right now. Ten minutes from now, you trust the shepherd. Just enough. It's hard to say it better than that guy, so we just watched the video. So how are those sheep fed? <clears throat> One bite at a time. They had to trust the shepherd. They had to keep moving forward when all they could see was rocks. Oh, if you get it early, I won't have to preach as long. How did God feed his people in the Old Testament when all they saw was desert? Manna. One day at a time, they had to trust him for their provision. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Give us this day our daily bread. Not weekly, not monthly, not quarterly, daily bread. As good as it was, you can't rely on last year's spiritual food, let alone last week's church service or even yesterday's devotional. We need to feed daily on God's presence. Let's read that one more time, verses 2 and 3. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Uh, hey, raise your hand if you've ever chopped down a tree with an axe. Any George Washington juniors here? <laughs> it's kind of fun, and you should do it at least once in your life, though I think legally you are supposed to have a beard and a flannel shirt while chopping it down, so please be aware of that. 
Um, so one time as a kid, a big tree fell down in our backyard, and I was chopping it up into smaller pieces so that we could, um, you know, move it out of there. And as I'm a few dozen swings in, the axe head flew off into my neighbor's yard. So thankfully, not through a window, but it was still a little concerning. So fast forward 20 years later, and my parents are out of town on a work trip, and I stopped by to collect their mail, as a good son does. But there was an ice storm the night before that knocked down a huge tree right in front of their driveway. So uh, I pulled my Jeep over to the side of the road trying to figure out what to do. Of course, I did not bring a chainsaw with me to collect the mail. Um, so I went into their garage to see what I could find. Uh, lawnmower, no. Uh, air compressor, no. Hey, what's this? It's the old axe. Now, don't worry, I reattached the axe head with a few wraps of electrical tape when I was a 13-year-old, so I'm sure it's fine two decades later. So the problem here is that they lived off a busy street. So if I was chopping the tree towards the road, there's a really high chance the axe head is going to fly into oncoming traffic, which isn't ideal. But I also can't stand in traffic and chop towards the house because then the axe head could fly into their picture window. So, um, but I also can't leave a tree blocking the driveway. Now, unfortunately, I don't remember how we solved the problem, but I imagine it probably ended up with some more friends, some chainsaws and some truck beds, uh, maybe even a few beards and flannel shirts. But the point here is chopping a tree with an old, barely taped together axe is not the best way to chop down a tree. A sharp axe is better than a dull one, and a chainsaw is better than an axe. But any of those tools require something very important. They require preparation. It takes work to keep your tools sharp, clean, and when an emergency job comes up, you are ready to go. You know what preparation is in the spiritual life? Rest. Rest. Uh, when was the last time you enjoyed a quality nap? Now, you know, a quality nap is like 20 to 30 minutes, and you're refreshed, and you're ready to tackle the rest of the day. That's rest. That's preparation for productivity. Compare that with laying on the couch for one to three to five too many episodes of a show that you barely enjoy on Netflix, and now you're feeling too sluggish to actually do what you wanted to do for the day. That's not rest. That's lethargy. Our bodies need a rhythm of rest and production. Rest and production. Well, guess what? So do our souls. There's a reason that keeping the Sabbath is a command, not a suggestion. It's easy to get in the routine of working and not resting, or to get in the routine of resting and not working. And both are tragic mistakes. Our most meaningful work comes from working very hard and then taking appropriate rest. The low-volume grind is what is a real killer. Not working very hard, but all the time. That's what burns you out. Low-purpose, low-challenge job with long hours. You don't leave feeling well-spent for the cause. You leave feeling like a nameless cog in the machine. That's why finding your ministry is so important, because ministry is high-purpose. You may have a long day of serving or difficult work on a project, but you're investing in the spiritual health of generations that will outlast you. You're making a difference both now and into eternity.
You can collapse after a six-hour children's event, a construction day, or a missions project, exhausted with all you've given that day, but knowing it was worth it for those that had a life-changing encounter with Jesus. Look at verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Now, we often hear this at funerals, and that's a little weird because it's not about death. It's about the shadow of death, a time of intense trial. Have you been in a season where you felt overwhelmed with the heaviness of the shadow of death, surrounded by your enemies, people that actively want to do you harm? Well, David sure had. And many times. So what was his reaction here? Well, four things. Number one, I will fear no evil for you are with me. The evil didn't go away. But God's presence was more than enough to protect him. Don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Number two, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Wait a second. What does the shepherd use those tools for? It's not petting the sheep. It's not giving them treats when they're good. It's disciplining the sheep when they don't listen to the verbal commands of the shepherd. God will start with a still, small voice to direct you quietly and respectfully and patiently. But if you ignore him, he has no problem bringing out the staff to knock you in the right direction. But it doesn't, don't let it come to that. Learn to discern and identify and obey God's voice even when it's quiet the first time. Number three, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. God provides sustenance for his people even in the midst of trials, not just when they're over. Here in David's life, the enemies didn't go away, but God still fed and provided for David, and he will still feed and provide for you. Number four, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. This is a callback to what happened very early in David's life. He was anointed king very young, but there was another king at the time, and that's not how that works. It's like being sworn into office as the president and then not moving into the White House for 15 more years. Meanwhile, the current president is hunting you and your cabinet while you're hiding in caves. That's what happened in David's life. So David is clinging to this promise. He knows that God is up to something big in his life, even if his situation at the time does not look good. I've been there. Have you? One ministry dream I had took nearly 12 years from an idea, a dream that God gave me, to completion. 12 years. Not a month, not a year, 12 years. I prayed, shared, dreamed, partnered, and planned, planned, but God didn't give me the green light for over a decade. Well, guess what that developed in me? Patience. All right. Let's finish up this familiar song and be shaped by it. Here's verse 6. Let's read this together. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This psalm is an invitation to dwell in the house of the Lord, his presence, not just eternally after you die, but starting right now. 
the abundant life that Jesus talked about, eternal life, everlasting life, that's the kingdom reality here and now through eternity. And it starts with a relationship. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. We're going to celebrate communion together today. And I'm going to invite Pastor Jeff and Pastor Matt. So Jesus invites us to the table to share in his sacrifice. At the Last Supper, he invited those that he loved. But he also invited those who were confused about who he really was. And he even invited those that would betray him within the hour. Jesus made space for each of them. He washed their feet. He served them. He fed them. He taught them. And the next day, he died for them. But that's not the end of the story. A good teacher dying for his friends is an amazing story. But that's not all the gospel is. We're here 2,000 years ago because the Messiah, God's anointed one, took our punishment, our sin. He took it on the cross. He defeated death in the grave. And he rose again on the third day. He brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That is a shepherd worth following. So let me invite you to stand. Uh, We're going to make two lines, and we're going to receive the communion elements. Pastor Matt is going to run upstairs and around, and if you're less mobile, he will come serve you. And uh, let's come to the presence of the Lord at the table together. And then uh, please hold on to the elements till we can all partake together. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. You can hop over to PlymouthNazarene.com to connect with us further. Thanks. Thanks.